You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Today is part four, I think, in our summer teaching series called VBS for Heretics. For those of you who didn't grow up in the church, that means Vacation Bible School for Heretics. Um, And we're looking at some of the most important stories in the Bible during this series. Um, The stories that we grew up hearing, perhaps in VBS, Sunday school, the churches we grew up in. And we're approaching it, these stories from a perspective that I'm confident you didn't grow up hearing. Uh, a perspective and a take on these stories that would be deemed heretical uh, in the traditions we grew up in, meaning just simply non-traditional, controversial. So today we're looking at the Exodus story, which is perhaps the most important story in the scriptures for two religions, two world religions, Judaism, and then of course Christianity. It's fair to say that there would be no Judaism without the story of the Exodus, or at least no Judaism like the one that we have. Without the story of the Exodus, there would be no giving of the law at Mount Sinai, no giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, no no Passover celebration, no story about God, pardon me, liberating his people from bondage in Egypt, bringing them through the desert and establishing them in what became known as you know, the land of Canaan, the promised land, or what became known as uh, the nation of Israel. <clears throat> All of this <clears throat> and more is part of the Exodus story, and therefore at the heart of what Judaism is. In fact, the Hebrew Bible, a.k.a. the Old Testament, which is what we call it, is basically a repetition of this story. It's essentially just one story after another, of God liberating his people from foreign oppression and reestablishing them as a nation. This wasn't just the story of Israel and Egypt, but the story of Israel being oppressed or invaded by um, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks. And then, of course, there's all those Canaanite tribes that they warred against, the the Amalekites, the Amorites, the the Jebusites, the Hittites, countless ites in that part of the world. The list goes on, which, by the way, is a terrible part, terrible part of the Exodus story, this part where God supposedly tells Israel to seize the land of Canaan and exterminate all of its native inhabitants, including their children, this is, this is a horrible, awful story, actually, and, and an idea of God that I think we should repudiate and reject just out of hand. This idea of a God who commands genocide and, and, and the killing of entire nations just because they're in the way, including their children. This is an astonishing, uh, astonishingly cruel deity one that is absolutely at odds with the deity revealed 
in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. But nevertheless, one cannot understand ancient or modern Judaism without understanding the Exodus story in its entirety. Likewise, there really would be no Christianity without the Exodus story. This is not just because Christianity rose out of Judaism or because Jesus was Jewish, but because Jesus' story, as we find it in the four canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus' Jesus's story is itself a reenactment, a repetition, a reenactment of the Exodus story in its entirety. Jesus is given to us here uh, in the Gospels as the embodiment, the fulfillment, uh, and, and an acting out of the Exodus story in his life and ministry. And I'll give you some examples here. When Jesus was born, we're told in Matthew's Gospel that his parents had to immediately pick him up and take him away and to escape into Egypt in order to escape the clutches of the evil King Herod who wanted him dead. And there we're told Jesus and his family, the infant Jesus resided and um, they did not return to Israel, we're told, until after Herod was dead. And Matthew's gospel tells us that upon the return, this had happened in order to accomplish the words of the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Do you hear those words? Out of Egypt, I have called my son. A clear allusion to the Exodus story. And this, and it's there in Matthew's gospel to locate Jesus in the Exodus tradition to communicate to, of course, Matthew's original audience, which was Jewish, that, hey, this Jewish guy, I mean, this Jesus guy, he is the embodiment of the Exodus narrative. Pay attention to him. He is someone important. Another example would be Jesus' baptism in the River Jordan and his immediate uh, journey into the desert wilderness where he is tempted and tried for 40 days. This is a reenactment, a mimicry of Israel's baptism, so to speak, in the Red Sea and them being immediately driven out into the desert wilderness where they were tempted and tried not for 40 days as Jesus was, but for 40 years. And just as Israel was tempted and tried by hunger, doubt, and idolatry, I mean, the temptation to worship other gods, so Jesus was tempted and tried with hunger, doubt, and idolatry. But where Israel failed the desert test, Jesus passed and thereby became a new Moses, Moses 2.0, if you will, uh, or an embodiment of this Exodus motif. But again, a kind of Moses-like figure capable of leading his people on a new kind of Exodus into a new promised land called the kingdom of God. Another allusion to the Exodus story we find in the Gospels is in John 6, where Jesus describes himself as manna from heaven, as the bread given to us from heaven. During their time in the desert wilderness, we're told the Israelites that, that God supernaturally provided for them food from on high called manna, which loosely translates in the Hebrew to simply, what is it? 
not a very imaginative term. They called it, what is it? But the idea or the, the story is that overnight, this stuff would trickle down out of the heavens and it would collect on the ground like dew. And it was a bread-like substance that kept them alive. Jesus in John 6 says, I am the manna from heaven, the true bread. And those who you know, consume this bread of life will never die. And this is this idea. Um, and keep in mind, Jesus describes himself as this true bread and manna from heaven in the same chapter in John's gospel where he feeds the 5,000, which is another allusion to the Exodus story. This idea of God supernaturally uh, providing food for the nation in the wilderness. Jesus feeds the 5,000 in the wilderness, we're told, by multiplying the loaves and the fishes. Again, another allusion to the Exodus story and God's provision for his people in the wilderness. Consider also Jesus's transfiguration on Mount Tabor just before his arrest. We're told Jesus encountered Elijah and Moses in this cloud of glory at the top of Mount Tabor. And there his countenance was transfigured. And when he came down the mountain, his disciples said that his face shone like the sun. The exact same thing happened to Moses, we're told, when he was up on the, on the top of Mount Sinai and standing in the presence of the Lord and receiving the Ten Commandments, when he came down, he was transfigured and his face shone like the sun. This is interesting. It's an exact replication of Moses on Mount Sinai, Jesus on Mount Tabor, the transfiguration of his countenance. And uh, it's interesting in the ancient world, Mountains were seen as places where you could more easily commune with the divine. It was seen as mountaintops were seen as thin places, places where the boundary between the spirit world and this world or heaven and earth was particularly thin and one could more easily communicate with God. It was, it was seen as a local call in the ancient world to be at the top of a mountain and communicate with God as opposed to a long distance call, right? So you know, we find these, these correlations between Jesus on Mount Tabor and Moses on Mount Sinai, both are transfigured. Both faces shine like the sun. And Jesus, we're told, is literally speaking and hanging out with Moses on Mount Tabor, right? Again, another excess illusion. Finally, we're told Jesus dies on Passover. What is Passover? Well, it's, it's this high holy day, right, on the Jewish calendar that has its roots in the Exodus story where the angel of death, we're told, passed over, thus the term Passover, the angel of death passed over the houses of Israel and Egypt and only took the life, the lives of the firstborn males of Egypt. This was the 10th and final plague, we're told, that God sent against Egypt to force Pharaoh's hand in letting his people go. Traditionally on Passover, the temple priests in Jerusalem would sacrifice a spotless lamb and sprinkle its blood on the altar in order to atone for the nation's sins. For this reason, we're told Jesus was called the Lamb of God. He was sacrificed during Passover. And this atonement theology grew up around this, right? This idea that the Lamb of God, Jesus of Nazareth, was sacrificed on the cross and his blood atoned for the sins of the world. I'm not saying I agree with that atonement theology, but that's tradition. That's how that was understood. But this, again, is another clear Exodus illusion found in the Gospels, and there are others. We don't have time to go through them all today. 
What does all this mean? Well, for most scholars, it's believed that Jesus was deliberately placed in this Exodus tradition by his earliest Jewish followers, namely the gospel writers. In other words, an Exodus mythology, an Exodus legend was created and built up around the story of Jesus of Nazareth to lend him authority to say that he was an embodiment of the entire nation and its history. He was the fulfillment of their most sacred story. He was a Moses-like figure, an archetype for Moses, who was leading his people on a new kind of exodus out of the kingdom of darkness, a kingdom of greed, a kingdom of hate, a kingdom of violence and bigotry and oppression. Jesus was leading them out of that and into the promised land of the kingdom of God, not a geographic promised land, not a physical, literal, geographic promised land of castles or, or cities with walls and marketplaces and militaries and territory to govern, not a physical promised land, but a spiritual promised land of love and light and justice a, a promised land, a kingdom, if you will, of liberation for the oppressed, a kingdom where the hungry are fed, the naked are clothed, the foreigners are welcomed, a kingdom where the mighty and the rich are brought low, and the poor and powerless are exalted and lifted high, as Mary sang in her Magnificat. That, I believe, and a lot of scholars believe this as well. That is the meaning behind the Exodus mythology that saturates the Gospels in Jesus's story. It was meant to say, this is who Jesus was. This is who he is. Pay attention to him. Follow him. He's the true Moses. He's leading us on, on a true Exodus from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Okay. Now, this obviously, obviously means that the four Gospels are, uh, shall we say, not entirely historical, right? But are very mythological and legendary. Yes, there's history in there too, to be clear. I think Jesus of Nazareth was a real person. I want to be clear about that. I think he was a real person who said and did great things and was ultimately crucified for resisting unjust powers. But it's impossible to extricate the historical Jesus from the mythological one, nor should we try. I don't think we should even try. Because I think we should embrace the Jesus myth. Because it's saturated with meaning. And it's powerful in a poetic way. It's powerful in a poetic way of communicating deeper spiritual truths. In other words, the stories may not be historically or scientifically or factually true, but they are literally spiritually true. What do I mean by that? They are there to teach us literal truths about God and what it means to be his people, literal truths about the sacred, the divine, whatever you want to call it. They're there to teach us literal truths about God and what it means to be his people. They're, they're there to teach us what love and justice look like and what, and what the height of our humanity even looks like. 
Jesus, in a way, represents the, the height of, of the human potential to be divine, to live in a divine way, and to embody what we would call this Holy Spirit of love and justice and compassion. I think it's also important to mention that the vast majority of scholars today, since we're talking about the historicity of the Gospels, I think it's important to mention the historicity of the Exodus story itself. Most scholars do not believe the Exodus story is historical. There is no evidence that millions or even hundreds of thousands of Hebrews were ever enslaved in Egypt. There is no evidence that there was a mass migration of people who walked from Egypt to the land that eventually became Israel. There would be a trail of broken pottery, waste, and other evidence, physical evidence, strewn about the Sinai Peninsula if the story was factual. Thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people marching in the desert for 40 years would leave a lot of evidence. Consider also that the distance between Egypt and Israel is only a few hundred miles. Depending on where in Egypt you start walking and how many miles you walk a day, it would take an average person, I guess, in their 20s or 30s. It would take you only a week or two to go from, to walk from Egypt to Israel. And yet we're told the Israelites wandered in the desert, lost for, not for a few months, not for a year, 40 years. It's just not plausible that tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people wandered around the desert between Egypt and Israel for 40 years and left no physical trace. So, yeah. But none of this, to be clear, I don't say this, you're used to hearing stuff like this here. I don't say this to ruin your faith, but none of this, in my opinion, should detract from the meaning of these stories or their role within our religious traditions the notion that stories must be factual or historical to be meaningful is a modern notion and a modern bias that is really unfortunate. Anyone who's ever read a book or watched a film from the fiction genre and found themselves moved to tears or getting goosebumps, anybody who's had that experience knows that fiction can be deeply true, deeply meaningful, in profound ways, I, I'm reminded of this quote from a friend of mine and a scholar named Kester Bruin. He spoke here years ago. He once said, what I love about fiction is that in being upfront about the fact that what follows isn't true, it can get on with being true. That's the power of fiction. It speaks of deeper truths. So I'm saying let's embrace the mythological aspects of the text as a poetics should read it as a poetics, a medium or a mode of communication that speaks of deeper truths about what it means to be human, what it means to be divine, and, and to be the people of God, the divine, the sacred, the holy. What does it mean to embody our divinity in the world with each other, in relationship to each other? That's what these stories, I think, are really about. I think it's important to understand that in the ancient world, 
when we read these texts, these are ancient texts, sometimes written in dead languages like Aramaic, Koine Greek. These languages aren't spoken anymore. It's important to understand when we read these texts, the symbolic and the metaphorical back then were seen as a kind of spiritual language. The symbolic and the metaphorical were seen as a kind of vocabulary of the spirit, a vocabulary of the, of the hidden and unseen things. Symbols and metaphors and myths were an esoteric mode of communication for higher levels of consciousness. Let those with eyes to see and ears to hear perceive and understand these things, the text says. Which is to say that if you don't like symbols and metaphors and myths and poetry, well, then, then maybe the Bible and religion isn't for you. And, and that's okay. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be for everybody. That's okay. But if, if you want to understand the text, if you want to understand our religious traditions, these spiritual traditions, you have to understand and appreciate these, these ancient ways of communicating through metaphor and myth and symbology. You have to like symbols and metaphors and poetry and mythology if you want to go down this road. We modern Westerners have trouble accepting this. The church has taught us terribly. We, we modern Westerners have trouble accepting the mythological and symbolic nature of the text because our modern Western worldview prioritizes and even fetishizes, I would say, science and objectivity, empiricism and historical facts. We're told that only that which is historically and scientifically accurate is meaningful and true. But such thinking completely dismisses huge aspects of the human experience that are subjective, these aspects of the human experience that are subjective, experiential, imaginal, and even spiritual. And by dismissing those things, we're dismissing huge aspects of what it means to be human and huge aspects of what constitutes reality for us. And I can't think of a worse thing than that. So let's embrace the myths, the metaphors, the symbolism, the, the poetics. Let's embrace it as such. Let's have eyes to see and ears to hear what the holy, the divine, the sacred is telling us through these texts and embody it. I want to conclude today by saying that the best take the best take I ever heard of the Exodus story comes from the late Dr. James Cone, who is considered the father of Black liberation theology. He taught at Union Seminary in New York for many years. It was the Exodus story for Dr. Cone that is at the heart of the gospel and what it means to be the people of God in the world. And to be clear, Dr. Cone was a liberal Christian theologian, a scholar. He didn't read these stories scientifically. He didn't read them in a hyper, in a kind of conservative, literal fashion, right? But for him, the story was still spiritually profound and spiritually true. And here's what he said about, about it. Either God is identified with the oppressed to the point that their experience become, 
becomes God's own experience or God is a God of racism. The blackness of God means that God has made the oppressed condition God's own condition. This is the essence of the biblical revelation. By electing Israelite slaves in Egypt as the people of God and by becoming the oppressed one in Jesus of Nazareth, the human race is made to understand that God is known wherever human beings experience humiliation and suffering. Liberation, therefore, is not an afterthought, but the very essence of divine activity in the world, end quote. Let me just say that last few sentences again. By electing Israelite slaves in Egypt as the people of God and by becoming the oppressed one in Jesus of Nazareth, the human race is made to understand that God is known wherever human beings experience humiliation and suffering. Liberation is not an afterthought, but the very essence of divine activity in the world. That's the Exodus story, and that's the gospel story, and it's true. And today, as we turn our attention to receiving the Lord's Supper together, as we always do, I want us to meditate on its Exodus correlation, we'll put it that way. In order to understand the Lord's Supper, uh, as a kind of allusion to the Exodus. Let's remember when it was instituted. It was instituted during Passover, on the night of Passover, we're told, at the Last Supper, which was the Seder meal. This, our sacrament, is part of the Passover meal. And I'm reminded this morning, and I'm going to just read this passage from John chapter 6, where Jesus says this. It begins by saying, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I abide in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven not like that which your ancestors ate in the desert and they died. But the one who eats this bread will have everlasting life. The word of the Lord. Let us receive the Lord's Supper now. And this table is open to all who wish to partake. And for those of you who are new, we serve this to each other. You take one of these gluten-free crackers and you dip it in the grape juice and you receive it. And then you serve the person next to you. Be blessed now in this. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. 
here's this week's unedited discussion. discussion period at the end uh, if people want to discuss. And so I'm curious if you have any thoughts, questions, or comments about the Exodus story in the Hebrew Bible and perhaps how it correlates and is found throughout the canonical gospels. Any any questions about any of that? So comments about it? How did it strike you? Yeah, Louise, let me bring you this mic. So embracing the myth, embracing the symbolism of it all, it seems like there is a fascination with numbers throughout the Bible, 40, 12, 7, 3. And, you know, a lot of the stories that are being told here, I can kind of understand and relate to. I just wanted some insight on what did those numbers mean to those to them? I understand, like, kind of replicating the 40 years or the 40 days, but why, did the, why 40 in the Old Testament? Why 12, you know, all that? That's a really good question. Um, why 40? That's, I don't have an answer to that one. Maybe somebody else here uh, does who um, has, has looked into that or heard something. I can tell you that 12 is a significant um, uh, number, specifically in the Gospels. Jesus chose 12 disciples. There were 12 tribes of Israel that came out of Egypt. Didn't mention that. Go ahead. Yeah, so another clear Exodus illusion, right? <laughs> 12 tribes came out, right? Uh, and they were the 12 sons of Joseph, right? And it was, uh, who was, it's not Joseph, the 12 sons of Isaac. Was it Isaac or Jacob? I get my Isaac and Jacob. My, Jacob, thank you. Jacob had 12 sons. <laughs> and Joseph was one of them, and he was sold into slavery by his lousy brothers and into Egypt, and they all ended up in Egypt. Okay. Yeah, so that's that's the 12 correlation. Um, and then the number of seven, of course, uh, correlates to the, uh, well, we're told in Genesis that God created the world, the cosmos, in six days, and on the seventh, he rested. So there's this idea of seven being the number of perfection, right? Um, but three, you know, um, is another important number, and certainly we're told that God, in the Christian tradition, not that in the Jewish tradition, we're told that God is three and one, right? That God is triune. Uh, there's probably other correlations to three that I'm not thinking of. Numerology is fascinating, but you're, and you're right, Louise. It's because it was it was meant to deepen the the symbolic significance of what's going on in the text. Because you know people read it, and they if you could discern the hidden meaning of it all, you were seen as spiritually adept. You were seen as in tap, the unseen world. It was like magic. This symbolism metaphor, the, the myths were seen, you know, as kind of a kind of magic. If you could understand the hidden meaning, you know, you had these kind of powers. You know, that was kind of the, the idea. You know, keep in mind that in the preliterate world, you know, those who could understand scribbles on stone man that was like magic you know so these ideas that you know written language would correlate with symbolism and metaphor and myth and it was all seen as this kind of spiritual uh way of of communicating um that just makes sense 
but um, I'm curious, anybody know what the 40, the significant, yeah, Jason. I'm not totally sure, but I know, I do have a book that says that there's a uh, archeological argument to be made that Abraham was the son of a Sumerian priestess. Mm -hmm. And the Sumerians thought that the number 40 was sacred because their main God, Ea or Ea or whatever, like that was his number. And there's a lot of allusions to like the Genesis stories, to Sumerian myths. There you go. And so maybe there's a connection like yeah. 40 comes from Sumer yeah. a long time before. Max, do you want to add something to that? Are you looking it up on Wiki right now? Yeah. <laughs> there's not a ton of stuff, but the most convincing I found is that it's it's the number of years of the generation. So like in oh. numbers, they would separate the generations and then 40 years, 40 years, 40 years. So I know wandering in the desert was like this generation yes. has not to the promised land. Yes. And generation is 40 years. So got it. And interesting. In its allusion throughout scripture, 40 is used over and over again to show like the completeness of things. So yeah. the rain falls for 40 days, God completes it. The people wander, Jesus yeah. fasts. So yeah. it's showing God completing whatever he's doing more than it's showing any period of time specifically. Yeah, that's no, really good. Yeah. So there you go, Louise. Yeah. See, we do answer questions here. We just we don't we don't just leave everything an abstraction. And be like, oh, there's no there's no there's no consensus. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, other questions, comments, things that were sparked today. Hi, Aaron. It's Akila. I hear somebody trying to come in over Zoom. I think. It's Akila. Can you hear me? Hey, Akila. Yeah, we can hear you. Yeah, I just wanted to thank you for the sermon. I just wanted to point out too that the um move to literalism was also um a way to what's the word i'm looking for to integrate oral storytelling traditions of native and african people and so who holds the knowledge who's allowed to be a scientist who's allowed to say what is true or not um is also a part of that move so i just want to point that out Okay, could you say more about that? Because I don't completely understand. But you say within the African tradition, the move from an oral tradition to a written no, tradition? No, no, in the U.S. In the U.S.? Yeah, in the U.S. So like this idea of literalism, of we must follow science and we must do the, the things that science says is true versus the um, an oral storytelling tradition yes. holds the state. Because who is allowed to be a scientist? Who is allowed to print? Who is allowed to say what's true? It's not Native people. It's not African people. It's going to be white people who can be literate, who can hold power, who can be yeah. scientists, who can go to school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Isn't that interesting that literalism is tied into oppressive forms of power? That is, it's absolutely true. You know, I, I remember reading an article about how the fact is all of these stories we find in the Bible began as oral tradition, right? These were the stories that communities, pre-literate communities were passing around to each other, just you know, around campfires or in sacred ceremonies. They would tell these stories and keep them alive through repetition. But the way that a, the way that a people relate to an oral tradition as opposed to a written tradition is really different philosophically, right? When, when when it's kind of an oral tradition, it's seen as, yeah, kind of not like non-literal, but 
is seen as something more living and evolving or active, or again, something that's kind of like metaphorical or symbolic. Whereas something that is written down is treated in this kind of, again, this kind of hyper-literal scientific or more objective way. Um, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Anybody else wanna comment on that or have another thought? Thank you, Akila. Since it's so close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I feel like you were making the connection too, but just to fully make it too, like even the process of writing down the scriptures and deciding on which ones were in and which ones were out and what the word would say and who gets to decide what the words say right off the bat was all about power, right? It was like all the bishops and the gathering and the councils and they were literal fist fights, right? In those meetings, this is true, uh, deciding like what gets written down. So it's the entire history of written word, especially uh, with the Christian tradition. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how even in, in the Hebrew tradition, these stories that we have in the text were not really written down until after the Babylonian exile or during it as a way of attempting to preserve their, their identity as a people in a foreign land. They were afraid of losing all of their traditions and history while being in exile in Babylon or just immediately thereafter. Um, and so they began writing all this stuff down. Um, and it's interesting that out of that, came the rabbinic tradition, which of course is about kind of debating the text and enjoying and inviting debate and disagreement and, and kind of keeping hold of the oral tradition itself, keeping hold of what their ancestors were doing. Um, and I find that, I find that beautiful and something that we modern Christians, colonial sort of, you know, uh, post and post European enlightenment Christians lost because we want to literalize everything and control everything and Lord, you know, over the text and control the church and control religion and control society with, you know, these, these ideas where, you know, um, that's not really the roots of it all. Anyway, lots going on there with power and frankly, colonialism and European enlightenment and how, how we have to um, deal with that. Interesting. PhD dissertations are written on this stuff. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Other thoughts today? One of the things that um, sermons, homilies, talks like this remind me of is the power of story itself. Right, the power of story itself and how important it is that we tell good stories, we tell new stories. And a big part of what I think it means to be a community like this one, post-evangelicals and deconstruction, is what, what does reconstruction look like for us? And for me, I think it means telling new stories or better stories or going back to the old stories and telling them in new and better ways. And, and for me, a lot of that comes down to telling stories about connection. And for me, that's fundamentally what the best stories in our tradition, including the Exodus story, teach us. 
our connection to, to the divine, our connection to each other, and our connection to the world around us. And, and for me, that is the biggest story we can tell and the story I want to tell here over and over again. That's the story I want to basically speak on every single Sunday, just in different ways. The story that we are all connected on, on a physical, metaphysical level. We are all connected to each other. We are all connected to the cosmos. We are stardust. We are of the earth. But we are also connected to this ultimate reality, this unseen ultimate reality that undergirds all things that we use words like God for, the divine, the sacred, the one, the source, whatever word you want to use for it. But the, the, the story, the ultimate story, I think, is one of connection. And for me, that's the most life-giving, liberating, healing, and hopeful story we could possibly tell. And uh, anyway, I wanted to just kind of leave you with that. Stories matter, and that's the biggest story um, that I want to tell here all the time. And the Exodus story, I think, is ultimately about that, too. But uh, yeah, any, anybody else this morning before we conclude? Oh, cool. Dorian, yeah. There we go. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and and also, I think it also, kind of to Akil's point, it it also doesn't, you know, it you know, the literary aspect of it, yes, it gives people power, but then the oral aspect of it also empowers the people who, you know, who don't have that medium and who, who yeah. quite frankly, maybe don't pursue that you know, route, you know, because, you know, the world isn't just made up of intellectuals and, you know, and people who all go to school and get their, you know, get their PhD and whatever they're studying, you know, it's, it's made up of, of people who live, you know, who work, you know, you know, blue collar jobs and stuff like that. So it's also important that we also hear their perspectives and not just, you know, and not just, you know, assume that everything in a book is transcendent across everybody's life, right? But that we have multiple perspectives, you know, through it all, I think. Yeah, really good. Um, no, and, and if, yeah, I, I think I told the story last week about my five-year-old telling me that for her, God is nature and the wind. And I'm just kind of like, that is the, one of the most profound things I've ever heard anybody say, but it's like a five-year-old said that. And I'm like, I think this stuff is intuitive. I think, you know, if you, if you look at, you know, the, the, the sh shamanistic religions, you know, even present in the world today, but certainly indigenous religions and, and shamanistic religions of, of uh, previous, you know, centuries, the underlying motif is often about oneness and connection with the world and how human beings are not separate and everything is one thing. And I think it's intuitive. I, th I think we know this. Because I was talking to somebody about uh, a lot of times in like conservative evangelical Christianity, how your social economic status a lot of times can define what what Jesus or Christianity means to you for for someone like who's doing what who's well off right it means you know oh God has blessed me because I've done the right thing right life, right and from a lower income perspective it's like I just need hope to get me through these these like like through what my the reality of my life is yeah. right and God is that hope or Jesus is that right. hope right for like middle income it could be like oh well you know we've made good choices and God has blessed us, right? So it, right. it, can, it can vary even within 
conservative it, oh yeah whatever it is right and so i think it's important to um, to know that there's so many ways to to keep an open mind about how we you know yeah to explore yeah man. spirituality and all. no you're right amen thank you all right well good stuff everybody let us conclude our time together uh, by saying this joint benediction as we always do again it's a way of reconnect or just focusing on this connection that we have to each other and, and to God in the world. Let's say this together now. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. Mm -hmm.